Well, it's such a great joy. Uh, I don't know if you can try to imagine uh, the emotions that uh, are in my heart uh, with the privilege of standing here today. I had the opportunity to speak to the guys at uh, man camp a few months ago, and uh, the first thing I said was them, uh, all of them had gotten old. All of them that I knew, they got old, and uh, I, didn't, I don't know how that happened. Um, uh, maybe the years have done a lot to us. I don't know. It was about 27 years. I was just thinking about it. It was about 27 years ago, probably this week or so, that uh, we had our candidating here and voting uh, to come as pastor. And uh, we were here for a glorious 13 years and uh, then uh, felt God moving us to Texas. And uh, sometimes we question that decision uh, as we drive up and see the beauty of this place and see old friends. And so what a treat to be here. Um, oh, God had that path for us. Has taken us through uh, paths that have been rich with blessing and also fraught with trouble and danger, and yet he has shown himself faithful. He's done the same for you, because the church is not about me, it's not about Kevin, it's not about the pastor, the church is about Jesus, and uh, the church will remain, the church will thrive, the church will continue to be what God wants it to be. Uh, pray for your leaders and pray for Kevin and the staff as they as they serve you and serve you well. I can't uh, thank you enough for the privilege. Uh, thank the elders for the opportunity. Uh, Chris and I are delighted to be here, and um, we just um, are so grateful, uh, so grateful for God's goodness. This was uh, home to us for so many years and still in many ways feels like home, and so uh, the opportunity to be back is just such a rich privilege. Uh, all kinds of emotions, and you know, uh, there are some changes. Uh, the most uh, persistent comment uh, today was echoed by my little granddaughter who kept saying, your mouth is white, your mouth is white, and I couldn't figure out what she meant, and then she was pointing at my, uh, my gray hair. I prefer to call it uh, wisdom. Uh, uh, the, we need wisdom today, don't we? Uh, if you watched the news this week, your heart was broken by uh, bloodshed uh, that is difficult for us to comprehend. We weren't in those circumstances uh, in some cases, in other cases, it's pure outright evil. And you look at these things, and your heart's your heart breaks, and your mind wonders. Your mind strives and grasps for wisdom to deal with what this world continues to throw at us. Uh, the circumstances around us, uh, the reality of aging, uh, the reality of the evil sometimes that we find even residing in our own hearts. And we need wisdom. And someone has said there's never been a time when we've had more knowledge and yet less wisdom. And I think that may be true. And so in our church this summer, we're taking time to go back to the fount of all wisdom, which is the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. And we're working our way through the book of Psalms, not all 150 of them. My people were afraid of that at first, but uh, just selected Psalms. And uh, if you'll open your Bibles there to Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, I think that's where uh, we'd like to spend our time this morning. Uh, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are considered to be uh, introductory chapters to the entire Psalter, the hymn book of the people of Israel. And they are psalms that have to do with the different ways to live. Essentially what the Bible says is there are two ways to live. You can either live in faithfulness and in submission to God, or you can live in pursuit of your own desires, your own preferences, your own... You can be your own God, uh, with a small g, or you can serve the God of heaven, the Creator. And that's the essential message of all wisdom literature that you need to understand who god is and you need to fear him and uh, you need to acknowledge him for who he is and so the the first psalm begins with a personal application of a man who refuses to 
um, walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. On the other hand, this man delights in the law of the Lord. And so it's a personal application. Uh, the outflow of it is that that man who is faithful, who acknowledges God for who he is, that man will be like a tree planted by streams of water. He'll have a fruitful life. But on the other hand, the wicked are, look at verse 4, they are not so. But are they like, they're like chaff that the Tehachapi wind just drives away. There's no stability. There's no, there's no certainty. There's no hope for any stability. And the wicked will not stand in judgment, the sinners nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. In other words, they will not be able to stand. They're this chaff that gets blown away, and the judgment will blow them away. But on the other hand, the Lord knows, it's a personal word of relationship, knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Notice that chapter 1 begins with blessing, see in, in verse 1, and ends with the warning of perishing. Now here's what happens. You go to chapter 2. They weren't written together, but the Hebrews took them and they combined them together to introduce the hymn book for the, for the Hebrews in ancient Israel. And what you have in chapter 1 is you have this personal acknowledgement, this personal reality that you can either have God as your God or you can choose yourself as your God in your personal life. And then what chapter 2 does is it brings that entire dynamic onto a cosmic level, kind of a worldwide level. Because chapter 2 talks about nations. Chapter 2 talks about, about the cosmic battle, the battle of cultures, the battle of kings who set themselves against the God of heaven. And in essence, it's the same reality. And what is interesting is it begins with these kings that are raging, this is what we're going to deal with, primarily chapter 2. I know some of you think, well, you just preached chapter 1, I know, but I'm going to preach chapter 2 this morning. It begins with, with uh, judgment, it begins with punishment, it begins with danger, uh, and we'll see that in a moment. But look how it ends. It ends at verse 12, it ends with blessing. So chapter 1 begins with blessing, ends with the warning of perishing. Chapter 2 picks that theme up of perishing, takes it onto a macro scale, and deals with the realities, and then it brings it back to blessing, the opportunity to be blessed by God. So that's what we have here. So let's read it and follow through as we read Psalm chapter 2, and remember as we read that this is God's Word. Psalm chapter 2, beginning verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah, his Christ. Against his Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What's the response of God? Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord, Yahweh, hold, or the Lord, that's not Yahweh, that's, um, that's um, God Almighty. God Almighty, the mighty, powerful one, holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. And here's what he'll say. And it sounds odd because it's not what we expect. Because look what he begins to talk about something that seems out of place. God, the creator who reigns in heaven in dealing with all of this resistance and rebellion from the kings of the earth, this is what he says. As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Huh? Verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord has said to me, and here evidently is the king talking, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make your nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. Okay, that's what's happening. God's saying all, there's all this rebellion by the nations of the world, but I've got my program. 
And my program begins with this one that I'm going to set on a holy hill in Zion. And this is what this one says. This king who's there says that this is what the father said to me. You are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And then there's a warning by the psalmist. Verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. If I had a title this, this morning for the message, it's Kissing the Son kissing the sun what does that mean in the middle of of what basically is is cosmic smack talk that's what you've got you've got the kings and the rulers who rule over the earth empowered by the forces of evil and they're talking about how they're going to overcome the god of creation how nothing's better than them nothing's greater than them they would listen to what pastor kevin told the children this morning and they would scoff at that because in their heart of hearts, whether they ever say the words, in their heart of hearts, they say, I am God. I am the master of my own domain. No one will rule over me. And God watches from heaven and laughs. The purpose and the subject of this psalm is to understand God's merciful, patient, gracious, yet uncompromising authority and kingship. You need to go away with one truth today. God is king. And all that that involves, all that that entails in your life, we better think about it. God is king. These are sobering, if not frightening truths. You need to take care that you're not living as a rebel this morning. You need to take care that you're not in rebellion, even as one of God's children, that you've not drifted into rebellion. There's a warning here. It's very sobering. But there's also, in the middle of this, of this tense and, and intense warning and the danger and the... And the, and the the overwhelming concept that God is laughing at you in derision, not in kindness, but in derision. In the middle of all that, there's also hope. There's also promise. There's also an encouragement. So here's what I want you to see. I've got three points. Anyone surprised? Three points. Here we go. The first is this. This great king is faithful. This great king is faithful. And you see the faithfulness in his promise about his anointed one. Because he's making a specific promise about a specific nation, the nation of Israel. And he's acknowledging that there is going to be established on the earth while all of the other nations rage and all of the rulers plot against the God of creation that he's going to have his own king. He's going to have his own people. And we know that people to be the people of Israel. So this was, in a sense, a coronation psalm. This was a song that was sung in Israel when the king mounted the throne this was the promise if, if the language here of of you are my son today i've begotten you it it echoes the promise that god made to david back in second samuel seven fourteen about david's son and the, the reality is we know if you know your church his, or your bible history solomon didn't live up to that and solomon's sons were even worse and some of them were train wrecks right and so the full fulfillment of this kingship it's still waiting to be fulfilled on earth over Israel there's still an anticipation that one day there will be an establishment of God's kingly line this promise and all of the people of God have anticipated this so much so that when you come into the New Testament there is this understanding that the anointed one 
again, that's just Messiah. That's the term Christ that we use for Jesus. This anointed one is from the line of David. He's the, he will one day sit on the throne of David, and we look forward to that. All of these conditions have never really been met. When will they be met? Well, one day when Jesus comes. When Jesus takes back his people Israel. When Jesus sits upon his throne at Jesus' return. When one day there's a Jew on a Jewish throne in the capital of Israel fulfilling the promises of the Old Testament. And here's what will happen in that day. On that day, all the world, all of the nations of the world who were led by the kings that took counsel against the God of heaven, all of them will look and they'll say, if I can say it this way, oops. That's what he said he would do. That's what he said would happen. There have been 2,000 years now of scoffing. In fact, from this time, there have been over 2,500 years of scoffing about this promise that there would be this king that would rule on the throne of his father David and would have the entire universe, as it were, or all the earth would be a better way to say it, as his heritage, the ends of the earth as his possession, and breaking all of the others with a rod of iron and dashing them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It hasn't happened yet, but according to the word of God, according to the promise of God, one day it will. God is faithful. And this promise is given us here, and we're still in the middle. God made the promise. We're now living, waiting on that full promise, but we believe one day he will fulfill it. He will fulfill it. God is faithful. He will be faithful to Israel. The outcome is not in question. It's only the timing. And God is not dismayed. You understand that God is not wringing his hands, wondering how he's going to handle ISIS. God's not looking at the two candidates for president and wondering what on earth will we do because he's the king over heaven. He's the king of all. And he has made his promises. And one day, and I should remind you, I used to say this when I preached here, I'll repeat it again in case you're confused. This has nothing to do necessarily with the current state of Israel, other than those of the Jews. But I'm not suggesting that that is the king, that is the government that Jesus will reign over. I'm not sure that's David's throne that's going on right now over there. But one day, it will be David's throne. And God's promises are faithful. And here's the application to that. This great king is faithful, and therefore we should trust him. He's faithful to his promises to Israel, and he can be trusted with you. Now, by the way, if you know the book of Romans, I'm sure you do, if you go back and think about it, all through the book of Romans, which most consider to be the apex of Bible revelation, all of the glories of the gospel, you go through the book of Romans, you hit chapter 9, and all of a sudden it stops. And chapters 1 through 8 are all about the glories of the way a holy God takes sinners like us and calls us holy. Wait a minute, how can a holy God do that? So the book of Romans explains that. It's through the person of Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice for sin, through faith in him. And 1 through 8 explains the gospel. And all of a sudden in chapter 9, it's like Paul takes a detour. It's like an off-ramp. It's like his thinking goes off track. And if you don't understand the context in which he wrote, you might say, why does he begin to talk about Israel? And he spends time about talking about the promises of Israel and why Israel is unbelief. And he even talks about the, the mysteries of election and all of that. Well, here's the reason. It's because a skeptic reading the book of Romans, knowing that Jesus was the Messiah of Israel, this anointed one that's referred to here, a skeptic would say, whoa, whoa, time out, wait a minute. God can't even save his own people Israel. If God can't save his own people, Israel, how can I trust him to save me? And so Paul goes on to explain that God's not through with Israel. And however you line up about understanding end times, you need to recognize that Romans 9 makes it absolutely clear. God's not done with Israel. 
And God will fulfill those promises because he's faithful. And the whole argument of Romans 9 through 11 is you can trust him to save you because he also will be trustworthy to save his own people, Israel. Now, what does that mean? Very simply. It means you can trust him with your past. This great king is faithful. You can trust him. You can trust him with your past. How many of us? Our past filled with things we wish we could undo. Words we wish we could unsay. Deeds we wish we could take back. You know that none of that was a surprise to God when he reached out and saved you? He knew about all of you. And he can be trusted. He can be trusted with your life right now, whatever mess it might be in. And you can be guaranteed that he can trust you in your future. I don't know what your future is like. I don't know what mine is like. All of a sudden, when you turn 60, you start thinking about things that you never thought about before. And you wonder about the future. But Jesus is this great king who is faithful. He will fulfill his promises to Israel. And if that's true, he also will fulfill his promises to you. And you can trust him in your hurt. You can trust him in your fear. You can even trust him in your failure if you'll come back to him and repent and give him your life again. This great king is faithful. We should trust him. But he's also righteous. You don't want to miss that. And it's one thing that's pretty clear in the text. The nations, the nations here's what they do. The nations say God's government and his authority is bondage. Did you catch that? The fact that God is God puts me in bonds and i want to break apart those bonds i'm in jail and i want out of jail i want total freedom i want to do whatever i want to do i, I want no one to, to to put any kind of demands upon me i want to be a completely free moral agent here's the crux the root of the conflict and this conflict is really the conflict is is aggravated by the reality of two unshakable realities the first is the sovereignty of god and the second is the pride that resides in our own hearts those are the two realities in play here and make no mistake god is sovereign this is astonishing to our modern and postmodern ears but here's what god what god is saying here god as he stands in the heavens and all of the nations are mocking him and resisting him and plotting against him and god laughs in derision essentially god says he has the audacity to say change your loyalty to me he is sovereign where else do you hear this kind of demand in our culture and we need to be honest about it and not back away from it someone might say well you sound like islam well there are a lot of differences between biblical christianity and islam but there is one thing that's still true god is king and he demands our worship our submission our obedience he is sovereign this is clear from scripture let me give you some examples of this i think we've got the words up on the screen psalm twenty two twenty eight. for kingship belongs to the lord and he rules over the nations deuteronomy 32 when the most high gave to the nations their inheritance when he divided mankind he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of god but the lord's portion is his people jacob his allotted heritage in daniel 2 look at what it says he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. 
He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. He's in charge. In Daniel 4, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? That, that is an audacious concept. This is how sovereign God is. No one says to him, God, why are you doing this? I mean, a lot of people try, but God is sovereign. It's not just an Old Testament concept. Paul said on Mars Hill, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live all, on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Let me sum it up from Psalm 115. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He's sovereign. And the problem with all of that is the pride of man, this radical freedom that it represents the rebellion that's under the sovereignty of heaven. God hasn't lost control, but this culture and this world is surely in rebellion against him. This radical independence, this desire for total autonomy, it's this insistence, and we find that it resides in all of our hearts, doesn't it? You know, when Jesus was on the earth, he told the parable of the of the absent landlord that's become a that's become a cultural term people who scoff about the nature of god call him an absent landlord but the concept is in the parable of jesus where he talks about that a man owned a vineyard he went out he had tenants to care for it he sent back representatives to check on the vineyard and remember they treated him poorly and then finally he sent his son and what did the wicked tenants do they said we'll kill him and he's an absent landlord and People scoff about the absentee landlordism of the God of creation, and God owns that. He says, there'll be, there'll be, there'll be accounting someday. There'll be judgment someday. But what did they say? If you go and read the parable, it's in the book of Luke, you'll find that, that what they said finally when their, their son came, their attitude about all this is, we will not have this one to rule over us. We will not have this one to rule over us. That's the attitude of pride. And we can preach and say amen and be excited about all of the evil out there. But the danger is how often do we see that attitude in our own hearts? We know God has convicted us. We'll not have this one rule over us. He's not only our king, he's our savior. And sometimes we say, we'll not have this one rule over us. This great king is righteous. He is righteous. And the sobering consequence in all of it, the sobering consequence is this folly. If you go back to Psalm 2, look, again, echoing the chaff from chapter 1, look at what it says in verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. I remember years ago, we used to go over to the coast and we'd stop in Paso Robles and there was this place that had this terracotta pottery that my wife seemed like maybe that was retirement because she wanted to invest so much in it. And so, and you know, that stuff always, I always liked the looks of it, but it frustrated me because I'm not real careful with things, and it seemed like they would break so easily. They would be shattered. You see, that's the image here of, of the, the potter's vessel that is dashed in pieces. And it's just Psalms 2 way of echoing what Psalm 1 said about the chaff that the wind drives. It's just not going to last. And that's the danger. Because 
our God, the King of heaven, is righteous. And, and the kings of the earth think they get away with something. But God just laughs. He is righteous. He is righteous. And as we saw, we saw he is faithful, we should trust him. If he's righteous, watch this, we should fear him. If he's righteous, we should fear him. Whatever you do, you don't want the God of heaven against you. Whatever you do. I mean, make your decision now. There's a lot of talk these days about being on the right side of history. Forget that question. Make sure you're on the right side, make sure you're on the right side of the God of creation. Because he's righteous. I mean, it's great to be on his side. The Apostle Paul celebrated Romans 8. He said, if God be for us, who can be against us? Let's be there. But you don't want to be on the other side. Hebrews 10.31 says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And don't confuse his patience, his long-suffering, with weakness. That's what the kings do. And the kings of the earth, as they plot, they just assume, we're getting away with it. Not the case. He is righteous. We should fear him. He is faithful. We should trust him. And then the third point, he is, this great king is great. This great king is great. It's pretty profound. I can't believe you're not writing that down. This great king is great. Look back at the psalm. After all of this, after the, the nations are raging, the people's plotting, the kings setting themselves, the rulers taking counsel, and the, and the, the reality of God's in, individual plan for Israel and to set up a king, in the middle of all of this danger and the danger, the judgment that this great king will one day finally bring about and you read you read about that we've already referred to it in verse 9 where this one will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel you think it would stop and sing a mighty fortress is our god and you know praise god for his might and his power he's righteous and he's faithful but you see what the god of heaven this one who has been plotted against you see what he does look in verse 10 it's astonishing really he says now therefore kings of the earth be wise be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. Lest you be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. You see what God does? He's so great. He gives an opportunity. He's great in his grace. He's great in his love. He's great in his mercy. He's great in his long suffering. The kings of the earth are plotting against him. And God says, I'll give you another chance. You can still turn. You can still change. Some of you today, the God of heaven says, I'll give you another chance. Be warned. I am righteous. I am faithful. I am righteous. Be warned. It's interesting, the language there. Do you see it? It says in verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. You catch that? That's just the nature of trying to comprehend the greatness of God with his, both his mercy and his terror. And, and it's built into the language. It's built into the language. It's like we can rejoice, but we rejoice with trembling. We can serve, but we serve with a sense of fear because this is the great God we serve. One of the old preachers said it this way. He said, there is a close relationship, a connection between all the graces of the Christian his faith agrees with humility, and so it is not presumptuous 
His zeal is kind, gentle, and benevolent, so it degenerates not into bigotry or rage. His penitence has hope in it, and so it is free from despair. His fear has joy in it, and so it does not bring distress. His joy has fear in it, and so it does not pass into levity. There is symmetry, there is harmony in the Christian character. It is not a jumble, it is not a contradiction, it is one. This is what you find here in the text. This is the great God. And to move toward my conclusion, this is the kind of God you want. You want a great God. Because for God to be a refuge, He has to be a God of substance. I know in your church you understand this. But perhaps you grow weary of Kevin and others pushing you toward the deep things of God and challenging you to think great things of God and encouraging you and equipping you to go deeper into the word and to think about hard truths and to think about how those hard truths fit together. Those issues are important because in a day of trouble, you need a conception of God that represents the strength and power of his refuge. You don't want a tent down by on the beach when the storm is going through. You want a refuge. Early on, when Kevin was here, he said, hey, we want to go to camp. I said, okay, go to camp. Camp for me was a place where you go. The camp I used to go to, it had a bowling alley and a swimming pool, and you stayed in cabins and everything. And, and I said, where are you going to camp? He said, we're going to the beach. And I thought he meant, well, he knows some camp with a bowling alley and a swimming pool over by the beach. He said, no, we're going to camp. And I went over to camp, and I thought he was insane. And you know, you, you know I never went to camp with you. Do you remember that? Uh, other than Bass Lake, and you put me in a nice house that week, I remember because it was just that, you know, they were intense. They were intense. I remember, I remember, remember that over there at the beach, those tents right next to the, to the railroad tracks. And the trains had come through in the middle of the night. And this is camping, you know. I'm thinking, listen, if, if I have a God who's going to be my refuge in time of trouble, I don't want to be in a tent on the beach. I want to be in Hearst Castle. I want to be in a refuge. And this is the greatness of our God. And one of the great challenges of our time is that we've kind of trivialized God. And so that satisfies it on a kind of a daily, weekly basis. You know, we get our touch of God and we feel pretty good. But I want to tell you, that's not deep enough. That's not strong enough. That's not powerful enough when the doctor says, I don't have good news for you. When you get a phone call that you never expected to get. When your family crumbles. When you lose your job. You need a refuge. This is the king we have. He is great. This great king is great. He is our refuge. He is great in grace. He is great in power. This is the refuge that we need. Now, how does God do this? How can he be both faithful and kind and forgiving and yet still righteous? Because this one who is his son in verse 7, the ultimate king who is his anointed, he came and he bore the sins of the world that God who is holy might take sinful people who are unholy and call them holy because Jesus stood in our place and Jesus took our punishment. He hung on the cross. He's not only the son, he's also the sacrifice. And this is the good news of the gospel. This is the promise. And if I've told you already that he is faithful and you should trust him, and I've told you that he is righteous and therefore you should fear him, let me finish by saying he is great, so you should run to him. You should run to him. 
Some of you are running in the other direction. Some of you have been running for years. There's a possibility some of you are sitting here and you used to listen to me preach. You've still never run to God for the refuge that you need. God sits in the heavens. He is righteous. He is gracious. But his patience is not eternal. The Bible never promises that. His patience is not eternal. Be careful. There's a sense of urgency here. Derek Kidner, a great Old Testament scholar, said, There is no refuge from Christ. There is only refuge in him. There is no refuge from Christ. There is only refuge in him. This great king of ours who is faithful, who is righteous, who is the great refuge of our souls. Blake and uh, his family are up in Kingsburg and they work with Scott Artabanus, who they would not know were it not for Kevin. So my kids would still be in Texas if we're not for Kevin. Um, I want to visit with you about that sometime. But if you know Scott, uh, some of you know him uh, from years ago. He's a dynamic, kind of gregacious. He's outgoing. He's always friendly. He's always embracing people, just like me. And um, <laughs> But he's just kind of, you know, Scott's the kind of guy, he's in, in your face. And he's, he's just uh, always there. And uh, May, who is our little, tender little two-year-old, who does nevertheless have a sinful nature, we find. Um, May, May has been somewhat uh, off-put by Scott because of his, you know, he's just, always gregarious and she's not quite sure how to deal with them you know and so uh, my understanding is a couple of weeks ago I mean she's around them all the time she doesn't quite know how to deal with them and so finally she asked my daughter-in-law Becca she said uh, Pastor Scott he he our friend because she knew that he had to be but she didn't quite get how that all worked and that's the tension that we ought to hold with our great God he is a consuming fire but he's our friend you say how does that work it works in Jesus that's how that all comes together reminds me of the great line from Narnia asking about Aslan said is he a tame lion is he a safe lion oh no no he's not safe but he's good he's not a tame lion great king is faithful he is righteous he is our great refuge let's run to him father speak to our hearts today there's some here undoubtedly in a group this size who have never admitted their sin and trusted in what you have provided to cover their guilt the death and resurrection of your son and though it might not seem as dramatic, they are just like the kings of the earth and the rulers of the nations and the peoples who continually seek to throw off the bonds of your authority. All of us lived in rebellion against you in our sinfulness. Do a work in our hearts, Father, and especially for any of those who are in that condition who have never surrendered their rebellion, never had their sins forgiven, I pray that they would make a decision of faith of repentance today for those of us that are in your family that have experienced your faithfulness and have recognized your righteousness remind us today that you are our great refuge there is no other help us not to trust in ourselves and the things of this world even as great and as wonderful as friendships and family are what tremendous blessings these are father ultimately you are our only refuge and we thank you for it 
consider the last words of this psalm. Blessed are those who find their refuge in you. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray.